I can still preach, okay. Um, man, if, uh, man, if I can just right, right out of the gate this morning, so a lot of you guys, and I, I don't feel like, uh, you know, it's, it's necessary um, for me to spend time introducing myself or anything, not because I think everybody knows me, just because uh, I just don't think I need to. Um, and, and, I, and, and I, instead, I want to kind of start just, just like this. In the six months that I was worship pastor here at Summit, and every time since then that I've had the opportunity to come back to Summit and preach, it's like the, the weekend that that's taking place, man, the... Uh, the enemy just decides to unload on me. And, and so over the past like three days, there's been so much spiritual attack in, in my own life and, and, and toward my own soul to where this morning, I just, to be honest, man, I just, just kind of just spent a lot of time on the way here just praying and just, and just saying, God, you know, you are in full control of everything. And I trust you. But I was very honest with God about my, my own feelings over this past weekend and stuff along those lines. And, and, uh, and then as I'm driving, I'm sitting here listening to songs and stuff like that, sitting here trying, you know, just getting in a worship mindset. But, but nothing's working. And then I go back to one particular song that is without question my favorite hymn of all time. And I know for a fact that there are some of you in this room who have went through far greater trials than I have this weekend, just in the past few days. And so, not merely for my sake, but for the sake of the church, I, I, I want to read some lyrics to you this morning before I start and... and and God just, just really just impressed that upon my heart this morning. A song called How Firm a Foundation. And, and listen to this. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent Word. What more can He say than to you He has said to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Now that sets the stage for, for this hymn. And what I love about this hymn so much is that the next four verses, it's unlike any other hymn that was ever written, the next four verses is God singing to his children. The next four verses is promise after promise after promise from Scripture of what God says to his kids. Listen. Fear not. I am with you. Oh, be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I will strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. 
When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow will not overflow. For I will be with you, your troubles to bless and sanctify to you your deepest distress. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace, all sufficient, will be thy supply. The flames shall not hurt you. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Listen to the last verse. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That so, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never, Forsake. Praise God. Praise God. A.W. Tozer, a preacher who I'm not sure how many people in America have heard of, said these words. He says, What enters your minds when you think about God? What enters your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you, all right? Now, with that being said, it's very, very important that we're right about what we think about God. Just, just let that sit in for a second. If the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God, then it's important that what we're thinking about is correct. Everybody following me so far? Because if we're not correct, then our lives are going to get jacked up when stuff happens. Our life is going to get messed up when things come our way. So that's what Tozer said. And again, I'm not sure how many people know who Tozer is. I would hope that a lot of people would, but... There was something else that was said by a very famous pastor today in America, and, and I'm not going to throw a name out even though I could, and my flesh really, really wants to, but I'm not going to. If you want to know who was, see me after. I may tell you then, may not. It depends on if the Holy Spirit leads me to or not. He said this, you have to develop your view of who God is through the prism of who you think you are. That is not biblical, and it's flat-out heresy, because if we determine who God is based on who we think we are, then we're going to have a bunch of different views of God, and if my view of God is contrary to your view of God, here's a politically uh, incorrect word that we don't like, one of us is wrong. One of us is wrong about who God is, and if we, if what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us, then we need to be right. And he has given us his word so that we can be right, so that we're not left to our own thoughts, so that we're not left to our own reactions for trials, We can trust in the fact that we have a God who will never forsake us, that he is faithful. We don't have to question whether or not he's here. Doesn't mean that we won't. 
means that we can trust. He is with us. See, Jesus used parables to communicate to his disciples the truth of who God is, the truth about what he's like, and the truth about what the kingdom of heaven is like. So we have to come to a correct view of God that comes from the word, not what we think about ourselves. Then and only then will we know who we are and how we should live. If you want to know who you are, if you want to know how you should live, if you want to know what the what life is supposed to be about, you look to the word of God, you find who God is in his word, then you will know then how you should live. I want to turn to one of those parables with you this morning. It's in Matthew chapter 20. So if you have your Bible, please turn there. If you want to load it up on a Bible app or something like that, please turn there. I'm going to give you a heads up. If you're going to depend on this screen, unless your eyes are great, you're probably not going to see that, all right? Because when I sent these when I sent these slides to Mark and, and I forgot to take into consideration, you know what? This may be a lot of text for one page, uh, uh, for one slide. And then this morning we loaded up, and I was like, I was correct. So if your eyes are way better than mine, then obviously you can read this. I have a hard time reading it from here. All right. So I'm going to get to this passage here in just a second as we look at this parable. When we look at this whole idea of who God is and who we are, we, we realize, and I don't have to spend much time here, but we realize that we live in a very me-first mentality culture, all right? And, and please don't make me explain that to you. Go outside and, and turn on your cell phone for five minutes. You'll figure that out really, really quick, all right? We live in a very me-first mentality culture, and that's because all of us are born with a me-first mentality. That's not something that you have to teach a child. They have mastered the art. All right, I've got five kids. I know. If you doubt that, come to my house for five minutes. All right? A study was done on the most annoying things that kids say. Ready for this one? Those of you who have kids, you can probably already list them in your head, all right? The most annoying things that kids say, and of the top five, here were four of them. Mine. Everybody's already shaking their heads, yes. All right? That's not fair. Now you're starting to laugh. Pretty soon I'll get an amen. I want it now. Me first. And the fifth one is a question. Anybody want to take a shot at it? Why? Why? There was no hesitation in that. <laughs> like before I even finished the sentence, there's the answer. It's why, and why usually follows a parent's explanation to the child as to why the first four are so selfish in the first place. In addressing this type of mentality, Jesus tells a parable while using the same phrase at the beginning and at the very end. That is this, the last shall be first, first be last. What does this mean? Well, I use this with my kids you know, the, when one of them wants to be first in line for something, I'm like, nope, first shall be last. Back in the line. <laughs> they don't like it. Uh, I, I've used this with uh, youth events before. When, uh, when um, we've got a youth event going on, I'm always the last one to go through the line first. And I tell everybody, you're allowed this much food when you go through to make sure everybody gets to eat. And I'm always the last one to go through. And when I go through, I pile my plate. All right, I pile my plate. And when they look at me and say, what are you doing? I say, last shall be first. For seconds. <laughs> so then after I go through, I'm like, you guys can come get whatever you want. So, but, but what does this 
statement. What, what is Jesus meaning by this statement? Is that what he's meaning by this statement? Now, there is, there is some of that thrown in there, that the first should be last, last should be first, and how we've always understood that. But what is he really saying in the whole context of this parable? Because we can take any verse of Scripture and make it say whatever we want. You guys realize that, right? That, that's, that's why it's so important that we read the Scriptures, we understand it in its context, if we're to truly understand what it's saying about God, and therefore truly understand how we, the, how we should then live. Now, what is this statement? The first should be last, the last should be first. What is this statement teaching us about who God is? What is it teaching us about uh, the kingdom of heaven? Because then we, shall, then we will know what it teaches us about who we are. Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Now, I'm going to read up through verse 12, and I'm going to stop there, all right? For the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like a master of the house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard, and going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. To them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. At about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired the first, first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. I'm going to stop right there, and we're going to pray here in just a second, but I'm going to ask this question, and I want you to just think about this to yourself. This may be the first time you've ever heard this parable. You may have heard it a thousand times. But based on what we've just read, from, from your perspective of hearing it or reading it, I want you to answer this question in your head. Does this seem fair? Does this seem fair? Father, I thank you for this time given me this morning to your word and I pray Father with all that is within me by knowing that I am incapable of doing anything in and of myself but I pray that you fill me with your Holy Spirit communicate through me this morning Father so that your people would hear your word that you would give us eyes to see the truth of the gospel the truth of what you have done by your grace God that we would move what you would move us toward obedience Father and what you have called us to Help us to understand and interpret your word correctly and, and thus understand who you are and from that understand who we are and how we should then live. May we never, may we never, Father, give in to the temptation to think you're a certain way because of how we feel or because of necessarily how, what we're going through. But let us stand on your word, the promises of your word that remain unshakable so that regardless of how we are shaken, you remain constant, you remain faithful. 
bless our time this morning, I pray. Forgive me for every way that I failed you in this morning. Speak through me. May every word that comes comes from me come directly from the guidance of your Holy Spirit. Let it be nothing in and of myself. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, chapter divisions are 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 good. You know, chapters 19, 20, 21. Chapter divisions are good because they help us find our way around the Bible. But, but however, every once in a while, uh, they can hinder our understanding of a passage by dividing it from its context. And and this is the case of the parable in Matthew 20. Because you can't just jump into chapter 20 and assume that you know what Jesus is talking about. You've got to go back and find out why Jesus is giving this exact parable. Now, uh, I, I, won't, I, won't sh- I don't think it's on the screen. Um, it doesn't have to be. I'm going to kind of paraphrase it for you. If you go back, if you've got your Bible, if you go back to Matthew chapter 19, just one chapter back, and you look beginning in verse 16, Jesus, uh, there, there's something that happens here. There's this rich young man who comes to Jesus, and, 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 and to give you a paraphrased version, he says, uh, Master, what must I do to, in, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you got to do, you know, uh, obey the commandments and stuff like that. And, and he goes, I've done all that. I've done all that. What else is there left for me to obtain eternal life? And, and Jesus says, here's what you lack. Because Jesus knew he was a rich man who put value and, and great, great pleasure in all of his possessions. He says, go sell everything you've got. Come and follow me. Give it all to the poor. Come follow me. And it says that the man went away because he was sad, because he, had, he, he was very wealthy. He had many possessions. And the disciples begin to ask questions, and Jesus said that it's, it's impossible for a rich man to get into heaven. It's, it's, like, it's like taking a camel and squeezing it through the eye of a needle. More possible for that to happen than for the rich to inherit the kingdom of heaven. And so the disciples are like, well, who in the world can be saved? Because you've got to remember, man, these guys were poor. These guys were poor. The, the rich were the first in society, man. They, they got the first for everything. How much has changed? And so Peter, Peter asks a question in verse 27, or, or, and he makes a statement in doing that. And listen to what he says in, in verse, seven, uh, verse 27 after Jesus says it is impossible for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything for you, Jesus. What will we have? We, we've left everything for you, Jesus. What do we get? You, you can kind of see this mentality, this little me-first mentality, even in the apostle Peter. And so Jesus responds to him, and in so responding, he goes down and says, yes, those who have left everything will be rewarded, but he, he gives this statement at the end of verse 19, but, but many who are first will be last, and last will be first. And then he goes on to explain this parable. And so when we look at what Jesus says, he is basically telling Peter, there's something that you need to know about the kingdom of heaven, Peter. There's something that you need to know about who God is and how he operates and how heaven operates so that you can know who you are and how you operate. It's not the other way around. Because Jesus often preached, he often taught in parables, and in doing so, he would say the kingdom of heaven is like. So that we would know what heaven's like, who God is, how God operates, and how we then should live. 
Again, not the other way around. So, many of us today, like maybe even Peter in this instance, thought that he related to God on the basis of merit. And it seems that he's already kind of adding up merit points here. So the parable in chapter 20 is a direct reply to chapter 19. So the main point of the parable, therefore, is that the kingdom of heaven operates not on the basis of merit, but rather on the basis of God's grace. And if we understand this clearly, we we do understand this clearly as it relates to our salvation because Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved. Not of works so that no one can boast. It's not anything about how we, how we gain acceptance from God. It's the fact that he is gracious and if we're saved, it is by the grace of God alone. The parable of the laborers in the vineyard teaches us that not only our salvation, but that our entire Christian lives are to be lived on the basis of God's grace. So with that, I've got two things really, really quick that I want to share with you over the course of the next few minutes. Two things about the grace of God that I want to focus on this morning. Two amazing attributes of God that are found in relation to his grace. And they are this. His generosity in bestowing grace. And the second one, which which we'll throw up on the screen here in just a second, is his sovereignty in bestowing grace. His generosity in bestowing grace and his sovereignty in bestowing grace. So let's look real quick at his generosity this morning. Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. Look at this again. Look what it says. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning, hired laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. So he's starting the work day. And and by the way, the, the landowner, the master of the house, is representative of who? Who knows? God. God is the master of the house. God is the landowner in this parable, all right? So this is teaching us something about God that we need to understand if we are to live in a way that is pleasing and honorable to him, all right? So the landowner starts hiring workers, and and the typical day started at 6 a.m. That's when the day would start. So he goes out the first hour, and he hires uh, laborers for his vineyard and he hires them at 6 a.m. So they are going to work with the work they would end at 6 p.m. So they're going to work a 12-hour shift, all right? A 12-hour shift for a denarius a day. That is what they agreed to. And they jumped on it because that was a fair wage. That was a very fair wage. And so they would work a 12-hour day for a denarius a day. Very fair. So he goes out at 6 a.m., hires guys for a 12-hour shift. Later on in the parable, he goes out the third hour, which would be 9 a.m. He finds people hanging out. He says, hey, come work in my vineyard. I'll pay you a denarius for the rest of the day. So at this time, they're like, man, this is is awesome. This is not even a full day's work. And this guy's going to pay us a denarius? This is crazy. Yeah, I'm going to jump on it. So he jumps on. He goes out the sixth hour at noon. Half the day is gone. And he hires people for a denarius a day. He goes out the ninth hour, 3 p.m., only three hours left in the workday, and he hires people for a denarius a day. And finally, finally, he didn't have to, but he goes out at the 11th hour at 5 p.m. Workday is going to be over in an hour. And he, that's right. And he hires guys to come work for him, and you know what he's going to pay them? 
full day's wage. It's crazy. Now, this landowner obviously represents God, and he's seen as both fair and incredibly generous. Everybody following me so far? To the first group, the 12-hour workers, he was fair in what he agreed to pay them at the beginning of the day, and he was progressively more generous to those he hired throughout the day. Now, he could have paid them all what they earned. He could have paid them that. But he chose to pay them according to their need, not according to their work. He paid them according to grace, not according to debt. See, the parable draws attention specifically to those who were hired in the 11th hour first, those who were hired at 5 p.m., those who, those who started working then. They were the first ones to be paid, which was odd, by the way, because normally, when Jesus was teaching, normally everybody would have been like, wait a minute, you don't pay those guys first. You, you don't pay those guys that started work at 5 p.m. You don't pay them first. You pay the guys who have been out in the heat all day. You pay them first. That was normally the case. But in the parable, that's not how Jesus presents it. So those who were hired for the least amount of time were treated with extreme generosity, having received 12 times what they would have earned on a normally hourly basis. Man, that's good pay. I'll take that. But why did the landowner even hire these guys the last hour? Newsflash. In this parable, Jesus is not teaching on Jewish agriculture. All right? He's teaching what the kingdom of heaven is like. And so those 11th hour workers were hired because they needed to receive a day's wage because those who lived worked a day-to-day -day existence. They lived a day-to-day -day existence. In fact, the law required landowners to pay workers at the end of each day. Deuteronomy chapter 24, Deuteronomy 24 verse 15, listen to what it says. The law says, each day you shall give him his wages and not let the sun go down on it for he is poor and has set his heart on it. Lest he cry out against you to the Lord and it be sin to you. So the law required that at the end of the day, they received a day's wage. And so he could have hired everybody at the beginning of the day, but he didn't. Some he hired at the very last hour, and he paid them according to their need, not according to what they had earned. See, this is the way God treats us. The Bible portrays God as generous and gracious over and over again, not according to what we have earned, but according to our need and often very far beyond that. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Philippians 4, 19 says this, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. If we are blessed at all, church, and all of us are, all right, all of us are, I don't care what your life's like. If we are blessed at all, and all of us are, let, let, newsflash, if you woke up this morning, you're blessed. Just letting you know. If we are blessed at all, and all of us are, it is because he is gracious, not because we've earned it. And if there is anything in this life that we have earned, in case we want to hang on to some sense of entitlement, we must realize that we have not earned it apart from his grace. He is generous in his bestowing of grace. We serve a generous 
God, but we also serve a sovereign God. We see the generosity in his bestowing of grace. Now we see his sovereignty in bestowing grace in this parable. He's not only generous, he's completely sovereign in dispensing it to whomever and however he wills. To be sovereign means to have full and complete control. It means that he is able to take what is his alone and do with it whatever he pleases. Grace, by definition, must be sovereign. It must be. If you Google grace and you, and you, and you thumb through the definitions, one of the definitions then is going to say this. The free and unmerited favor of God as manifested in the salvation of sinners and the bestowal of blessings. Even Google knows what it is. Even Google's got it right. If we go on in our parable... I don't, yeah, yeah, here we go. Listen to this beginning in verse 13. And I, and I don't know how many of these slides are going to match up, Ronnie. Follow me in case I keep going, all right? Whatever's there, I don't know. Look what it says, picking up in verse 13 where we left off. But he replied to them, this is the landowner talking to the laborers now. He replied to them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Remember what the guys just said, wait a minute, wait a minute now, you, you, you hired us for the full day, and you brought these guys in here for an hour's work, and you're paying them what you're paying us, this isn't right. We faced the scorching heat and the blazing, so we have, we have been out here all day long, we deserve more. This isn't fair, remember that question, is this fair? Listen to what the landowner says to these guys who have been working all day long, who agreed with him for their wage, and agreed that that was fair. Time, remember? But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. For many are called, chosen. That's a different translation than what I have here, I realize that. Let me read this too. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours, go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil? Because I am good. So the last will be first and the first left. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now, the question. Do you think the landowner in the parable was being unfair? I think this is unfair for the workers. And if we're honest, if we're honest, at face value, it does seem pretty unfair that those who worked a full 12-hour shift bearing the burden of the day in the scorching heat would receive the same pay as those who worked in the early evening, probably close to when the sun was going down for an hour. That does seem unfair to us. You know, try doing that in your job today. You know, you're going to have a lot of people quit really fast. That does seem unfair. However, to those who were hired to work only one hour, 
the landowner seems incredibly generous, does he not? He he may seem unfair to the 12-hour workers, but he seems incredibly, infinitely generous to the 11th-hour workers. The truth is, however, here's here's the issue. If, If when we first read this parable, we are troubled by the apparent unfairness of the landowner, it's because we tend to relate to the 12-hour workers. If we think this is unfair, it's because we associate ourselves with the 12-hour workers. But here's the truth. Every one of us in this room were hired at the 11th hour. We were all hired at the 11th hour. None of us were hired at at 6 a.m. We all came into the job at 5 p.m. And what the reality is, is that we are recipients of an infinitely generous God. And this sovereign grace that he gives us. Yet we focus so much on these 12-hour guys that we forget that we were the ones who were hired to come in at 5 p.m. None of us can come close to loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. I want you to know that. Because we're going to falter short. That's what we're commanded. That's what we're called to. But we fall short of that each and every day as long as we're in this flesh. The first and greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's what we're called to today. You're not going to do that today. That doesn't mean you, you, you don't try. But I'm just letting you know, because you're in the sinful flesh, there are going to be places today where you're going to fall short. Tomorrow, you're going to fall short again. The next day, you're going to fall short again. But I want you to know, and I want you to praise God for something this morning. Your acceptance before God is not based on your performance. It's not based on how good you keep the law. It's based on the fact that Jesus has kept the law for you, and you are a recipient of sovereign grace. Therefore, we praise Him. Therefore, we worship Him, because we bring nothing to this table. We were hired in the 11th hour and we are recipients of this incredible grace of God. Quite frankly, we we don't want God to be fair on the basis of how we understand fairness. And I'll conclude with that in just a second. But we need to be eternally thankful for all that God gives us and let us not complain nor envy when God sovereignly blesses others in whatever way he sees fit. As I said, the truth is that we don't want God to be fair on the basis of how we understand fairness because as far as you know, what we think is fair is usually selfishness in disguise. Another guy that is, he's, he's dead and gone on with the Lord now, great man of God by the name of R.C. Sproul, he, he gave an illustration one time as it relates to how we understand fairness. And when we look at God and we say, God, that's not fair. Much like these 12-hour workers who looked at the landowner and said, wait, wait, that's, that's not right. It's not fair. He gave the illustration like this. He said, imagine a professor in a classroom. And he, at the beginning of the class period, at the beginning of the semester, college professor, he looks at his class, he hands him the syllabus. And he tells them, there will be no exams in this class. There will be no quizzes. There will be no tests whatsoever. There's not even going to be daily work. I'm going to give you three term papers. That's it. And here are the dates for those three term papers. You know exactly when they need to be turned in. 
And if you turn them in on time, you'll pass the class. Now, word had gotten out over the years that, that this professor was very gracious. And he was very generous. All you would have to do is, is, is ask him and he would let you, he would let you make, make up these assignments and stuff along those lines. And so he, the date rolls around for the first term paper. And he begins to call off roll. And on this day, 15% of the class does not have their papers. So he checks off, Adams, do you have your paper today? Adams is, Adams is like, no, no, sir, I don't. But I've heard that you're a very gracious and you are a very generous professor. And if, and if you give me a week, I'll have it turned in. And he said, okay, Adams, turn it in next week. Anderson, do you have your paper? No, no sir, I don't. But I, I've heard that you are a gracious and, and generous professor. And if you give me a week, I'll, I'll turn oh, Okay, Anderson, turn it in. Bentley, do you have? Oh, okay, and it, and it goes on. You know, 15% of the class doesn't have their term papers. They turn it in next week. Date rolls around for the second term paper. He begins to call off roll. Today, this day, 30% of the class don't have their papers on time. Adams, do you have your paper? No, no, sir, I don't, but, I've, but remember, you're a, you're a gracious and you're a generous professor. Give me a week and I'll turn. Okay, Adams, okay. Anderson, how about you? No, no sir, but you're gracious, you're gen- Okay, Anderson, you turn it in next week, and so on. Third date, final term paper rolls around. 50% of the class doesn't have their papers turned in. Anderson, do you have your paper turned in? No, no, sir, I don't, but I know you're a gracious F. Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, sir, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You, you are a gracious, you are a generous F. Anderson, do you have your paper turned in? No, sir, I don't, but you are gracious F. Wait, wait a minute, sir. Wait a minute, Anderson and Adam speak up. Wait, wait a minute, sir. Th- this isn't fair. You, you gave us extensions on the other ones. You were gracious before. You're, why are you not gracious now? Th- this is unlike you, sir. Professor looks at Adams and Anderson and says, you want me to be fair? Adams, Anderson, do you want me to be fair? Yes, sir, we do. Okay. Adams, did you have your first paper turned in on time? No, sir, I didn't. F. Adams, did you have your second paper turned in on time? No, sir, I didn't. F. That's fair. Because he told them. They knew the standard. They knew what was expected. They agreed to it. And he did them no wrong. No wrong. Let me explain something to us this morning, church. Every single one of us deserve hell. We have all failed. This class known as righteousness. We have all failed and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all sinned. Because we've sinned, we're going to die. For the wages of sin is death. 
that's fair. Because we serve a holy God who must punish sin. But what God has done is sent Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, to live the life we could not live, to die the death we should have died so that he might be raised from the dead and give us eternal life. That is grace. We did not deserve it. We did nothing to earn it. Has given of himself so that we might have We need to remember that God is gracious, that he is generous in his bestowing of this grace, and he is sovereign in his bestowing of this grace on sinners. So you see, when Jesus says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first, there is, based on how we've always understood that, there is truth there in what we've understood. But what he is saying in the context of this parable is that it's not about rank. It's not about rank here. Remember what Peter asked him, what what will we get? It's not about rank. Basically saying there is no first, there is no last. If the last is first and the first is last, it doesn't matter. Those have been hired at the 6 a.m., those have been hired at 10 p.m., at 5 p.m., it doesn't matter. We are all recipients of sovereign grace. My wife was saved when she was four years old, and she can recall the moment that Christ changed her life at four years old. I had an aunt on her deathbed that I led to Christ in her 80s, a day before she died, and they are both equal recipients of the sovereign grace of God for all eternity. And here's where we fall into this trap. We think, some, some of you are in this room and you've been saved before, maybe. Maybe something happens to you in your life and you're like, I've, I've, I've followed you all these years. Why, why, would, why would this happen? Why, why does this not happen to somebody else? Why would this happen to me? God, that's not fair. But why isn't this happening to people who aren't, who, people who aren't even saved? That's not, that's not the point. The point is that every single day of our life, we need to wake up and realize that we are recipients of sovereign grace. We do not earn any of it. We do not add anything to it. The other amazing part about that is since we didn't bring anything to, to bring about our salvation, we can do nothing to, to, to lose it as well. Entirely the landowner. So he is to be praised. But there are some of you here this morning who are not yet recipients of the sovereign grace. But you cannot earn eternal life. You cannot work hard enough for God to look at you and say, all right, you're good, come on in. Not going to work hard enough for it. Because all your good works are as filthy rags in the sight of God. They're all tainted. No matter how good they are. And God being holy can have nothing to do with it. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Purifies from all unrighteousness. We confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart God raised him from the dead. We will be saved and all who call upon the name of the Lord. A recipient 
sovereign grace. Let's remember how blessed we are. Remember how good and gracious God is, even in the midst of our How much He is still in control. He's the landowner. We get the great privilege of serving Him. I'm going to close in a word of prayer, and this will end our service this morning. So if you would, just bow your heads with me. Close your eyes. While we're in a state of prayer, while we're focusing on the grace of God, as we prepare to be dismissed this morning, first and foremost, I pray that you might take that connection card that Dana talked about earlier and that if there's a decision that is to be made this morning, you'd fill that card out and give it to one of the workers or put it in the offering plate here in just a second. There is one person here who does not know Christ as your Lord and Savior. I pray that today would be the day. God would open your eyes to receive him. Trust him. Father, thank you again for this opportunity that you've given me. Thank you for your word. The power that it has. Thank you, Lord, for your generous, sovereign grace that we are undeserving are good to us. Pray, Father, you would bless this church. They would stand firm on your word, knowing that that is the foundation of their faith. They would trust in you every day of their life. In Christ's name I pray.